from Dartmouth Health, this is The Cure, a podcast focused on providing up-to-date healthcare-related information in a practical and easily digestible format. I'm your host, Jesse Swain, System Director of Infection Prevention at Dartmouth Health, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Talbot, Infectious Disease Physician at Dartmouth Health, Professor of Medicine in the Section of Infectious Diseases and International Health at the Geisel Medical School, and New Hampshire's Deputy State Epidemiologist, Dr. Talbot is an infectious diseases and tropical medicine trained internist who has had extensive experience in international and domestic infectious disease control through outbreak investigation, clinical projects, research, and consultation. Welcome, Dr. Talbot. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very grateful to be here with you today. Thank you. COVID-19 is not an illness of the past. However, there is a new infectious disease making headlines in the media, monkeypox. Now, I'm assuming because the infection is named monkeypox that it is likely originated in monkeys. Dr. Talbot, can you tell us a little more about its origin and how it is currently transmitted to humans? Sure, Jesse. Indeed, it seems like a cruel blow while our attention is focused on learning how to live with COVID. We are all now steep on the learning curve for monkeypox. So indeed, monkeypox was named because it was first diagnosed in monkeys in the 1950s. It wasn't until the 1970s it was recognized as a cause of disease in humans. But now we know this is a pathogen, a virus, that has a preferred host in rodents, in fact. So the name monkeypox is actually artifactual from the fact that we first identified it in monkeys that were being housed in laboratories for research close to rodents that likely gave disease to them. That's fascinating. I'm always intrigued by how infectious illnesses can adapt to survive and propagate. So Dr. Talbot, can you also give the listeners some background on what this infectious illness looks like and what symptoms could be associated with it? Sure. As you might gather from the name pox, there is a rash that distinguishes this from some of our many other infectious diseases. The first symptoms of monkeypox usually include fever, headache, exhaustion, feeling tired, muscle aches, sore throat, cough, and even swollen lymph nodes. So I'm sure you heard in that description that that sounds awful like a lot of other diseases, and and that can make it complicated for clinicians to diagnose in the early stages. But a few days after the start of these symptoms, characteristic skin rash starts and then changes over time in a way that can really be a clue to this disease. That's exactly what I was thinking when you started talking about those initial symptoms is that would be very hard to distinguish from anything else. So in thinking about the infectious viruses out there, how does monkeypox differ from viruses like COVID-19? And does it have similarities to things like smallpox and chickenpox? Spot on, just excuse the pun. Yeah, the, the pox aspect of this disease is what can help clinicians start to think about it in their patients whom they're trying to diagnose. So the similarities with the smallpox are are marked. So after these general symptoms start that sound like a lot of different diseases, flu-like illnesses, the rash starts and is referred to as deep-seated lesions. 
So first they can be palpated, they can be felt in the skin and, and they generally are tender. They raise up, they erupt, if you will, so that then they're visible. They appear filled with clear fluid and then change to what appears to be pus. Those lesions become crusty as they open, they form scabs and then these scabs fall off. So I, I know that's a pretty graphic description, but the fact that they are deep seated, that is a deep within the skin, not superficial, like a blister maybe can be helpful. And indeed the distribution of these lesions helps too. The rash classically starts on the face and spreads down. That's not all of what we're seeing in the current outbreak though. So this warrants some renewed attention to the unique features of what's happening globally now. Dr. Talbot, Jose here. Thank you for joining us again. That's a great description. Uh, I always find it uh, very uh, fascinating as how these lesions evolve. And, and so I just wanted to ask you this question, seeing that monkeypox on the front page of major news sources uh, has certainly caused some apprehension on the heels of a never uh, ending, or at least that's how it feels like COVID-19 uh, pandemic. How prevalent is monkeypox in the United States to date and how concerned does the general public need to be about protecting themselves? It's a very active investigation, Jose, and that's generally what we say when we know that there are cases that are under investigation, not yet confirmed or in some stages of confirmation. So to have some reliable information, I always look to the CDC's website. Sure, it may lag a little bit from what happens in the state trenches, if you will, but right now the reporting number is simply 25. So the total number of monkeypox or orthopox cases is just 25 across multiple states. For example, California and New York each have five cases that have been confirmed. And then uh, a number of other states have just one or two cases. As I said, though, I'm aware that there are a number that are being evaluated even as we speak. Interesting. So it sounds like we still need to be thoughtful, but we don't need to be necessarily overly concerned in the public that we would have monkeypox. Actually, to follow that, Jesse, we are hearing folks call in who say, you know, I have a spot, I have a, a rash. And we can reassure that rashes are common and that unless there is an identified risk factor in the United States, it's very unlikely that that rash illness would be monkeypox. Great. So what are the recommendations for healthcare staff to protect themselves should they suspect that a patient has monkeypox? Right. If you are seeing a patient who meets the epidemiologic risk and the clinical appearance of this rare disease, then there are very simple ways that you can protect yourself. And in fact, we always have as an extremely important priority for us within healthcare settings to protect healthcare workers. So I'm, I'm glad we have a chance to promote that. We already use standard precautions for anyone who has a rash. It's something that is well entrenched in our healthcare settings and is going to cover a multitude of diseases. In fact, beyond that, when you are concerned about monkeypox specifically, it's appropriate to 
don a gown, have a eye protection on, use an N95 filtering face piece or equivalent like a papper, and, and of course to have gloves. So these are familiar maneuvers for healthcare workers who are encountering any patient with an unidentified rash. And this feels appropriate within the current outbreak if you're suspecting a case. That seems reasonable. And, you know, most healthcare workers at this point are very familiar with donning all of that, especially since that was the PPE for COVID-19 as well. So when should testing be considered for patients presenting to a healthcare provider with a rash and symptoms concerning for monkeypox? And as a clinician, how would you confirm that diagnosis? It's a pretty dynamic situation because the accruing cases informs how we suspect cases, right? So the more we learn globally from the confirmed cases, the, the better we are able to put our clinical suspicions to appropriate diagnosis of this disease. So who should be tested right now? It's any person with a new skin rash or these classic skin lesions that are concerning for monkeypox, these deep-seated, erupting from clear to pus, crusting over, as I've described. And there are these epidemiologic risk factors that have to be considered. This is not a widespread disease. This is not under uncontrolled community transmission in the United States. So we are still looking that clinicians identify risk factors that, as you might imagine, include travel to another country where monkeypox is confirmed. I think a very important risk factor that's emerging is close contact to a person who has a similar skin rash is confirmed with monkeypox or even suspected to have monkeypox. So that feels pretty obvious. And the third epidemiologic risk factor, which we should talk about, is that the other settings where monkeypox is being confirmed are doing the studies, doing the questionnaires, doing the investigations that let us know one of the major risk factors for this disease is having had intimate physical or sexual contact with a partner, and particularly men who have sex with men appear to be disproportionately impacted by this outbreak. Wow, that's really interesting. And if the patient is indeed positive, is there an isolation period for that patient and a quarantine period for individuals that had close contact with that patient and are considered exposed to prevent any further spread of the infection? You're right, there is. You know, and we haven't said it yet, but monkeypox is not a new disease. It's been recognized circulating in West and Central Africa for decades, and the experience there has informed what we know about infectious periods and how we can prevent spread from a confirmed case. So you mentioned our uh, buzzwords of isolation and quarantine. Isolation for ill persons, persons who are confirmed with disease, should last until the very last pox has dried up and the crust has fallen off. So I'm sure a lot of healthcare workers are thinking of chickenpox, as I said that, and it's similar. Infectivity ends when the rash has um, pretty much dried up and gone away. With regards to those who have had contact to a confirmed case, the period of quarantine, while we monitor them to see if they might come down with contagious disease themselves, that is 21 days. So health departments around the country are enacting that monitoring period to make sure that we don't come to a place of community transmission in the United States. 
Wow, that's really helpful information. And that is a very long quarantine period. So lastly, are there any treatment options available? There are. We're benefiting from the fact that we learned a lot from a close cousin of monkeypox that is smallpox. And so with concerns of smallpox in the use of bioterrorism, this advanced science that we now are uh, gleaning the medical countermeasures for monkeypox. So indeed, we have a drug called uh, tecoviramat. It's also known as T-pox. So you may see that in the news or otherwise. It is an effective antiviral medication already approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA. So we know we can use this to treat adults or even children up to a certain weight in, in case of severe disease. So we have that at the ready. It's in an unusual setting that is the U.S. Strategic National Stockpile, SNS, which is readily available should we need it. There are other treatments uh, that are more familiar to clinicians. One is called uh, sidofovir. We have used that regularly in the era of cytomegalovirus retinitis for patients who had AIDS. And it looks like it is also effective against monkeypox, which is a orthopox virus as well. So a third option, again, we've all become so smart as a result of having to learn so much about COVID treatments is using antibodies that have been generated against this virus. So using immune globulin, it's administered intravenously. It, it can be used when uh, a patient has severe disease. I'd like to circle back though, and, and indeed just make sure that it's clear to, to your audience um, that this generally is a monkeypox, that is, is a mild self-limited disease for the vast majority of people. So to, just to make sure we pause on that moment and all the scary words around strategic national stockpile and whatnot, don't lead people to think that they need to do any of their own stockpiling of disease like this. But most people do very well during the course of their illness. There has to date in the hundreds of global cases, nearly a thousand now, not been a single death from this disease. When this particular strain of monkeypox circulates normally in West Africa, the case fatality rate, the proportion of people who die with disease is less than 1%. So we're observing that here too, that most disease is self-limited and doesn't require these medical countermeasures that we've just talked about. Well, that's a relief, both knowing that it, the mortality rate isn't very high and additionally that we have treatments available, but are there also vaccines available? Indeed. So reiterating that the concern for smallpox as bioterrorism in previous decades led to development of useful vaccination, we're, we're benefiting from that now with the monkeypox situation. In, in particular, the vaccine that we're all becoming experts on is one called the Janios vaccine. It's a little unusual for the fact that it's administered subcutaneously. So clinicians might want to refresh their memories of how to give a vaccine that way. It's not challenging, it's not hard, but it is a skill set that the nurses and physicians have not practiced over the years since most vaccines are given intramuscularly. And this vaccine is also held within the Federal Reserve and we're quite aware of how we would access it should need be. We are hearing from other states, other jurisdictions that when needed, 
it's provided very quickly. And so we're also in a place to be reassured about that. The Genios vaccine is uh, important for people who have ongoing risk, laboratorians, for example, who might handle samples that are infected, but it also has a important role of what we call post-exposure prophylaxis, that if somebody has a high-risk exposure to disease, getting that vaccine as early as possible after that exposure can abort development of clinical disease. So this is a really useful tool in the toolbox for us. That's fantastic. Dr. Talbot, thank you for a wonderful wealth of information and for sharing all of this with our listeners. Just to wrap this up, do you have any key points that you would like our audience to take away from this? So I think the good news is that this is a disease that we have a really helpful model for, Jose. Like we, we know a lot about smallpox and some of those lessons are readily applicable here. We've talked about the fact that it's rare in the United States, that the tools for mitigating are absolutely at the ready. And so I, I hope that one of the messages that's coming forward is that there's no reason for um, excessive concern, but rather an opportunity to learn about this and be informed and also recognize that diseases will emerge in, in our coming years and decades. We certainly have seen this, that there are emerging infectious diseases and they often are zoonotic from animals. So there's just a lot of reason to, to remain at the ready and to make sure that we're taking care of our planet and our human animal interface and that we use some of the long learned lessons from experiences of other similar infectious diseases. Those were all great key points. And Dr. Talbot, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's a really useful contribution to a pretty dynamic space. So thanks and great day. Fantastic. So thank you again. And until next time, I'm Jesse Swain, and you've been listening to Dartmouth Health, The Cure. <laughs>